0: Hello and welcome to this Wednesday edition of Back to the Bible Today we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel with a message titled, Celebrating Repentance and Mercy So, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through to 39 as we join Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld for our study
1: We know that at one point in his ministry, and Luke records this in Luke chapter 7, that Jesus said that people were saying of him, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in case you didn't catch that, that that's an insult. Look at how he's living, they said. Look at who his friends are, they said. Today we're going to be looking at who Jesus' friends were, and yes, they do seem, at least from one perspective, to match the description that his critics gave of him. They were the very worst, and if you know something about church history, you'll know that the early Christians were also accused of this very same thing, that they gathered together the most despised members of society. And it wasn't just the early church. I remember a number of years ago, on my first trip ever to the nation of Egypt, And my joy of discovering that among the garbage people, that is, among the poor who went over the garbage dump in Cairo in order to find items for recycling and for sale, in order to make a living, among them was a vibrant Christian community. And I remember thinking, of course, this is exactly where you'd expect to find Jesus, among the poor, among the outcasts, among the people you would never expect to invite to an upscale dinner party. Here, I thought, are the footsteps of Jesus himself in this city. Now, where do we get that idea? Well, one of the places right here, from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi. Now, as is true of a number of characters in the Bible, it's true also in that culture, a number of people were known by more than one name. We also know Levi as Matthew, and yes, he is the author of the book of Matthew, and his conversion story is found in Matthew as well as Mark and in Luke. And because we're studying Luke, let's look at what Luke tells us. After this says Luke, which means that the encounter with Levi happened after Jesus had healed a paralyzed man. That man was lowered down on a stretcher from a roof right in front of Jesus, and Jesus had told that man his sins were forgiven, and the Pharisees had howled in protest. No one can forgive sins, they said, but God alone. But, of course, the Pharisees didn't know that God had come to them clothed in human flesh, and, yes, he had the power to forgive. And after the clash with the Pharisees and after the paralyzed man was instantly healed, Jesus went out out of the house when Mark tells the story, he says that Jesus went out beside the sea, but that doesn't mean that Mark depicts Levi as sitting in his tax booth beside the sea. Mark says that Jesus was teaching by the sea for some time, and it's only after that he passed by the tax booth. You know, it could have been that Levi did have a tax booth somewhere on the beach to catch fishermen, you know, bringing in fish, but it could also be that after teaching the crowd, Jesus went out and found Levi on the road outside the city, catching all the traders on what was called the Via Maris that ran outside the city. At any rate, wherever he was, he was a tax collector, and tax collectors were not well liked. You know, I've probably said that too kindly, Tax collectors were hated. They were despised. They were the scum of society, and only scum hung around with them. And that's because, in the case of Levi, he was collecting customs and dues, You know, arriving in the kingdom of Herod Antipas, who was also a hated ruler. He would have also collected tolls on farmers, fishermen. Tax collectors were in league with the Roman government, almost all of them that is in Israel were Jewish because as Jews they would have known their own population and they would be aware of who was trying to cheat the tax man. And furthermore, the wages of tax collectors came from the people whom they taxed. And although it's not said about Levi, a great many tax collectors overtaxed the population and thus they became excessively wealthy on the miseries of others. Tax collectors were cheats and they were traitors to their own people. And Luke records that Jesus simply said to Levi, follow me. That doesn't mean what you think. Now, this is the call of a famous teacher to a tax collector who says to him, leave your business and become one of my students. Whatever went on in Matthew's head, Luke doesn't tell us. Indeed, even Matthew himself, when he records this incident about himself, he says nothing about his thought process, nor about his motivation. He, as does Luke, simply records that he left everything. That is, he folded up his business, he tendered his resignation, and he rose and followed Jesus. And to be clear, you know, Peter, as well as James and John, earlier on in this chapter, left their fishing business and did the very same thing. But let me suggest that after Jesus was crucified and then raised from the dead, Peter, Peter and the others didn't know what to do with themselves, so they went back to Capernaum and they took their boats and took them out of mothballs and they began to fish again. But in the case of Levi, let me say this, he had nothing to go back to. He just couldn't unquit and go back to his job. Once he left the tax booth, that was a one-way trip. He was abandoning everything to become a follower of Jesus. So we might compare Levi or Matthew to the rich young ruler. See, when Jesus told that rich young ruler to sell everything, that man thought it was a bridge too far. You know, a demand too great. But Levi didn't think that. And that makes this event curious. Why isn't more said about what Levi was thinking? I think the answer is actually quite obvious. Levi just got a better offer. You know, imagine you have a job. It's a fairly good one, but it has significant downsides. Then you get a job offer that gives you better working conditions, doubles your salary. So when you quit your first job for the second one, no one says, oh, look, wonder what their motivation was. Of course they don't, because it's clear. Listen, the same is true for Levi and for all who leave everything for the sake of the kingdom of God. The eternal benefits of the kingdom are so rich. Any sacrifice is a mere pittance for the treasure they receive. Levi leaves everything for Jesus and he's so overcome with joy that he holds a feast in his house and people come to celebrate that he's become one of the disciples of Jesus. Luke says, a great company gathered in his house, but the feast is in honor of Jesus, who I imagine takes the center place at the table. Levi wants all his scummy friends to come and meet the man who's going to make him one of his students. What a gathering it must have been. I have to imagine that all Capernaum heard about it. And if the Pharisees were upset about the earlier incident in which Jesus had told a man that his sins were forgiven, you've got to wonder what's coming next. Is he about to tell this group of tax collectors and sinners that their sins are forgiven as well? I mean, what dangerous nonsense is going to happen? What's going to be announced in this infamous feast? And so at the very least, they want an explanation. Why do you, and the inference is, why do you who proclaim yourself to be a holy man and a teacher in Israel, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? You've got to explain yourself. Now, the explanation of such outrageous activity needs some time to settle in. He tells the Pharisees that he's not come for those who are well and that have no need for a physician. Now, now, in truth, neither Jesus nor the apostles ever believed that among the ruined sons and daughters of Adam, there was anyone who was well, were not well. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All are by nature the object of God's wrath. But Jesus is directing his comments to the Pharisees. See, in their system, righteousness was obtained by law-keeping. The righteous man obeys the law. The sinner defies the law and defiles himself. Levi's people were the sick, the sinners, the ones who were in danger of eternal condemnation. The Pharisees never thought they were. And it's not as if the Pharisees were entirely wrong. What they had wrong was that they were unable to see that the law not only condemned Levi, but it condemned the Pharisees as well. They were just as sick as Levi, and they needed a physician. I'm reminded of a conversation I had years ago with a woman who said she used to be a Christian and that now you know, she had abandoned Christianity and she was thinking of going back and giving Christianity another chance. After all, there was a spiritual need that she had. She said she needed to fill it. And so I asked her that when she identified herself as a Christian, did she think she was a sinner? And her answer to me was immediate, and it was emphatic. She said, of course not. It was as if she was telling me, that's not the kind of person I am. I'm not one of those hopeless tax collectors and sinners who need some kind of a rescue plan. I then was sad to tell her that Jesus had not come for the righteous, but he had come for sinners unless we come to terms with our own ruined lives and that we're rightfully the object of God's wrath, there's nothing in Jesus that we're going to find even remotely interesting. And that's the difference between the tax collectors and the Pharisees. The tax collectors knew they were condemned and needed mercy. The Pharisees never imagined it would be true of themselves.
0: This is Back to the Bible, Bible teaching you can trust. If you are a regular listener to Back to the Bible Jamaica in recent years, you've probably wondered why is it that we've been so heavily promoting the correspondence courses for children. Well, surveys have shown that 83% of Christians make their first commitment to Jesus between the ages of 4 and 14 that is, when they are children or early youth. Further surveys done indicate that children aged 14 to 18 have a 14% probability of doing so, whereas unbelieving adults aged 19 and over have just a 6% probability of becoming Christians. The data clearly illustrates the importance of influencing our children to consider making a decision to follow Christ as their Lord and Savior. In fact, because the 4-14 to 14 age group slice of the pie is so large, many refer to this age range as the 4-14 window. The question is, is your child or ward in the 4-14 window of their lives? Then why not get them enrolled? in a free mail-in Bible correspondence course today. It's just like those that helped me and many others to become rooted in the Word of God when we were children. For information on how your child or ward can sign up for these free mail-in Bible correspondence courses, please call eight seven six nine two zero eight three. One, one. That number once again, 8769208311. Now as we prepare to get back to the Bible, let's rejoin Bible teacher John Newfeld with the conclusion of today's
1: study. Jesus has come only for sinners not for those who deny their sin. We can't come to Jesus unless we confess we're sinners and that we're desperately in need of a Savior. That's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. I feel it necessary to stress this because some time ago, there were those who argued that we shouldn't talk about sin in church because people already feel sinful enough. What they need is affirmation and not condemnation. As inviting and as compassionate as this seems on the surface, a little thought tells us it's not so. Survey after survey has shown that most people don't identify themselves as sinners at all. Indeed, although people readily admit they've slipped up, they've made mistakes, even done some things they're not proud of, and people do admit that they sometimes struggle to feel good about themselves and they have to fight for affirmation and approval, but underneath all of that, most people say, I'm still basically a good person. Indeed, a great many people find the thought that they're sinners to be deeply offensive. And because of that, many advocate that we should soften our message. I was attending a Christmas concert some time ago. A pastor had said that Jesus came to save us from ourselves, he says. Of course, I caught that, as did anyone else in the room who actually knew something of the Bible, because the Bible, the Christmas story, actually, Matthew 1.21 says, She shall bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, not from themselves, but from their sins. But saving us from ourselves, well, it sounds a little more gentle, doesn't it? I mean, after all, we all make mistakes. We sometimes react in ways we shouldn't. We've all said, you know, sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. That is, I I want what's good, but sometimes I act in ways that militate against my own good intentions. I need to be saved from myself in the sense that I, I need to be saved from the times I do foolish things. But Jesus in the home of Levi, accompanied by other tax collectors, traitors to their own people, along with other notorious sinners. No one had to be gentle around this crowd. They knew they were sinners. And it's among sinners that the voice of Jesus is heard with the greatest joy, as among the sick that the master physician is heard with the greatest of joy. The only reason to come to Jesus is because of desperation. We need a Savior. Not someone who's going to top up the holes in our lives or someone who will help us to find what's missing in our lives. We need a Savior to save us from our sins and our rebellion against God and the rightful judgment that awaits us. So there's a celebration in Matthew or Levi's house. Salvation from sin has come to Levi. He's leaving his life of sin and he's going to be a student of Jesus, the great healer, the great Savior. And then with this matter being said, Jesus' enemies are not done. Let's read Luke 5:33 to 39 And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and uh, offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skin will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now, here's a new criticism. All right? Say the Pharisees and other critics... So you've come to call sinners to repentance, and that's why you're in the home of these horrible sinners. Well, that's admirable. I'm glad you're there for those who need it, and they're finding solace in your teaching. But they say, are you really saving sinners? Have a look at your lifestyle. John the Baptist and his disciples, they fasted often as a part of their ritual prayer and devotion. But you, we don't see you doing that. You're eating and drinking. It doesn't appear to be a life of self-restraint, which is a a part of the life of a holy man. You're adopting the lifestyle of sinners. Now, I've made it appear that the ones asking the question are still the Pharisees and their followers. You know, others say, you know, maybe the people that, you know, they are the disciples of John the Baptist. That is, Jesus feasting in the home of Matthew was in danger of not just offending the self-righteous Pharisees, But he's also in danger of offending the sincere followers of John. They want to live a life of genuine repentance from sin and humility and faithfulness and self-restraint. What happens if Jesus offends even them? Let's back up. The First Testament law only had one required fast each year, and that fast was on the Day of Atonement. Each Israelite says the law was to afflict themselves on that day, and that affliction is to be understood as fasting. But in the course of time, occurrences of fasting began to grow. And as we also know, that the Pharisees not only had multiple times of fasting, but during the fast they'd make their faces look gloomy, and they'd wear the clothing that everyone knew was the clothing of one that was fasting. Now, I'm not saying that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is to be compared to the fasting of John's disciples. There's surely a difference between them, but the fasting spoken of here is not required fasting. There might be occasion when fasting is necessary or that you have extraordinary fasts, but they are not required of anyone. And as a point of application, it is fascinating how often external practices, even practices that are not required in the Bible, frequently find their way into people's lives and minds, and they become necessary parts of their spirituality. I mean, the idea of freedom, that is, the freedom of allowing our consciences to dictate to us on matters not required by Scripture, that idea is foreign to many. I love to tell the story of the Reformation in Switzerland and the day that Ulrich Zwingli ate sausages. The Roman Catholic Church had mandated that on the day in question, only fish was to be consumed, and Zwingli was trying to make the point that we must obey Scripture wherever it commands us, but when there is no biblical command, we're free to allow our consciences to dictate our behavior. And so on that single day, when only fish was to be eaten, there was Pastor Zwingli, joining the other sinners in the city of Zurich, eating good old-fashioned Swiss sausages. I understand they were very good, but I also understand what Zwingli was trying to say. You can't command someone to do something that Scripture doesn't command. Getting back to Jesus, he explains his further aversion to fasting at that present moment. It's just like it would be inappropriate to wear sackcloth and fast on the day of a wedding When joy is called for, so the Son of Man has now entered the world, and he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, and all Capernaum is getting healed from every infirmity. That happened. A leper was cleansed, and a bedridden paralytic had picked up his stretcher and briskly walked home, and when above all, there was a scoundrel of a tax collector named Levi, cheating a scoundrel. That man had sold out his people for money. He was a traitor to God and to Israel. And on one day, he repented of his sins. He walked away from his tax booth. He invited every scoundrel friend he had ever had to come to a dinner to meet Jesus. Was this a time to fast? Didn't the very nature of the day that was at hand call for celebration and feasting and joy? And Jesus is not done. He tells a parable of a garment and of a wineskin. The neat thing about new wineskins, when they're new, they actually expand with the fermenting of the wine, and thus, in time, they adjust to the wine they hold. But in time, the skin actually hardens, and the time of expanding and contracting is no longer there. And so, when you put new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins don't expand, they just break. Now, as we know, Jesus is not suddenly switching the discussion to talk about the proper care of wine. He's, he's telling a parable. What's he saying? Well, Jesus is saying that Pharisaism, as well as the structure of Judaism, with its priests and traditions and corruptions and so forth, this would never be able to house the new covenant that has come in Jesus. It simply didn't have the capacity. Jesus was predicting the day. When a church of the Savior would be needed to house the glory of the gospel and that would usher a great company of untold millions of scoundrels from every tribe and race and tongue and people, they would repent and join Levi and become disciples of Jesus. Well, what does verse 39 mean? No one after drinking old wine desires the new. He says the old is good. It simply means that Jesus was doing something new. And people would reject him simply because it was new. But Matthew wouldn't. Neither would the paralytic. Neither would the notorious sinners and the ruined lives of people who were saying we need a savior. The fact that sinners were finding new life needs celebration. It still does. There's joy in heaven for every sinner who repents.
0: Thanks for that message, Dr. John Before we end today's Program, can you tell us how Important is it for the church To hear the stories Of the rescue of Ruined lives?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean You know how faith building that is I mean, I, I love uh, even, re, you know, remembering my own story of how ruined I was and how gracious Christ was to me. And then to hear others do that and recognize how busy our Lord and Savior has been. But it is a wonderful faith-building thing to hear of individuals who are lost because we all were. And then to hear how Christ redeemed us. I mean, whether that happened when we were, you know, kids who didn't know very much, but Christ had mercy on us or whether it happened when we were broken up adults. I mean, in no way does that change the fact that Christ has saved us and transformed us. And that's wonderful.
0: Thanks for joining us today here on Back to the Bible, brought to you by Back to the Bible Broadcast to Jamaica, in a partnership with listeners who give in support of this ministry. Our office is located at shop number 22, Hagley Park Plaza, Kingston 10. Our office hours are from Mondays through to Fridays from 8.30am through to 4pm. We can be contacted via email at backtothebibleministry at gmail.com. Our office number is 876-926- 5765 and our cell and WhatsApp number is 8763376295 To listen to this study again or some of our previous studies they are available in our free mobile app along with other Bible engagement material just look for BTTB Jamaica in your app store That's B-T-T-B Jamaica. You can also listen and download our studies from other podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Be sure to look for Back to the Bible Jamaica. Please join us tomorrow as Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld shares a message titled Lord of the Sabbath. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Jamaica, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.